Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Sarah Worley about mental causation. Welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, so, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I've been thinking about mental causation for many years. I did my graduate work at the University of Pittsburgh, um, where I actually wrote on the question of animal minds and animal mentality. And that got me thinking about questions about the role mental states play in causing behavior. Um, and then I've been working on that issue and some other related issues um, for, for a bunch of years now. But I'm happy to you know, talk about mental causation here. Right. So what was it that inspired your interest in mental causation? Well, as I said, I started thinking about this question of animal minds and how we could tell whether it was appropriate to ascribe mental states to animals or not. But part of the question in we have to think about in answering that question is how to reconcile the fact that we can explain behavior both in terms of physical uh, states, mechanisms, in terms of some design principles, and also in terms of mental states. So it looks like we, and this is true for people too, not just true for animals, we've got a whole bunch of different levels at which we can think about persons or think about animals, think about any, any kind of living thing. We can think of them purely as physical things, um, you know, neurons, brains, chemical, electrical impulses, just purely physical interactions. We can think of them in terms of kind of a design level, you know, what are people, what are their functions, what are the functions of particular organs? What are the functions of particular parts of the brain? How do all these things work together to generate um, a functioning organism? Or we've got this third level, which we think is appropriate for some kinds of creatures and not for others, which is to explain behavior in mental terms. We think that people, maybe some animals, do things because they have particular beliefs because they have particular desires, because they have particular reasons, because they have particular conscious mental states. We think that this plays a role in the explanation of their behavior, but then that raises the question of how do we understand the interrelationships of that kind of explanation with uh, more purely physical explanations. So it's, it's that kind of question that I'm sort of been motivated by and been trying to think through for a bunch of years now. 
would you have a definition of mental causation? Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think I think of it in terms of a problem more than a, a definition. Um, we do think that we explain people's behavior all the time by appealing to their mental states. We say that, you know, I went to the store because I didn't have any food and I was hungry and I believed that going to the store was the best way to get food. So we explain our behavior in terms of our reasons, um, in terms of our beliefs and in terms of our desires. And so that kind of explanation is an appeal to mental causation. The problem is that especially if you're a physicalist, we can get into questions about physicalism and dualism. Um, if you're a physicalist, which is to say that you think that there are, people are just physical, right? There's no extra um, soul or spirit or anything like that. It's where people are just physical. You think that we've got, um, my action of going to the store is a physical action. For me to walk to the store requires that my, my legs move in a particular way, right? That requires muscle contractions to get my legs to move in that way that actually gets me to the store. Well, what causes muscle contraction? What causes muscle contractions is, uh, is motor neurons. Motor neurons innervate the, the muscles and cause them to contract. What causes the motor neurons to fire? Well, it's more neurons firing. And you can just give a completely physical explanation of all our behavior. But given that you can give a completely physical explanation of all our behavior, what, how is there room left for the mental, for beliefs and desires, for mental states to make a difference? What kind of space is left for the mental to make a difference, given that we can explain all our behavior in physical terms? Dualists have a problem with mental causation too, but it's a slightly different problem for them. Um, but for a physicalist, the problem is how do you, make room for the causal role of mental properties as opposed to physical properties. So since you've, you've studied, we'll say, non-human animal and human animal with mental causation, um, what do you think the, the main differences are or all the main similarities are between human and non-human animals? I think it's less clear how to make sense of or which animals we should ascribe mental states to. I mean, I don't, I think there's not really a serious question about a whole bunch of them, right? Higher primate, cetaceans, um, even dogs and cats, I think we can say, you know, mental attribution works for them. It's harder to know for some of the, I don't know, put quotes here, lower level animals. And partly I think the problem is that it's harder to know how to understand consciousness. Now, consciousness, I think, is related to questions of mental causation, but it's not exactly the same as it. Well, we don't really have a good explanation or a good understanding of exactly what's responsible for consciousness and how do you tell whether a particular animal is conscious or not. We're really struggling with that still. Um, 
So I think, you know, for some kinds of animals, to the extent that you can make sense of mental causation for people, you can make sense of it for animals too. But the question of making sense of it for people is still a hard one. So could you tell us about the history of philosophical thought regarding the mind-body problem? Yes, um, that's interesting and complicated. So I'm not going to go all the way back to the ancients, but in the early modern period, Descartes is a really important figure here, right? And Descartes thought that Descartes was a dualist. He thought that there was, there were minds and there were bodies and bodies were subject to the, um, the laws of nature, the laws of physics. So if you wanted to know what a body did, you just you had to treat that as a, as a physical object and, and a thing in terms of, of mechanisms. And that, that's how you could understand um, the workings of body. Mind, soul, spirit, if you like, was supposed to be something that was really quite independent of body, um, is non-spatial, immaterial, not physical, somehow associated with, with body, um, but not the same as, and this causes a tremendous problem for mental causation because it's really unclear how a non-spatial immaterial thing can make a difference. Right, so the thing that the comment that I made before was that if I go to the store, my going to the store requires that my muscles contract in particular ways. And what causes my muscles to contract in particular ways? Well, the motor neurons and blah, blah. We can tell this whole story back up to the, the workings of the brain. If you're a Cartesian dualist, so you think that mind and body are really different, how, how does that immaterial mind, that non-spatial immaterial thing, how does that cause my, my neurons to fire? What kind of a causal interaction can there be between this non-spatial, immaterial, completely non-physical thing? How does that make my neurons fire? How does it get in and make a causal difference to what my body does? Um, it, no one's ever been able to really adequately solve that problem. Um, so interaction is dualism, which is the idea that the, the, the mind, which is this non-physical thing, causes behavior. That's, that seems a, a really diff difficult view to hold because no one's ever been able to really explain how this kind of interaction can happen. Um, there were a couple of kinds of dualism where they, people kept the dualism, but they gave up on the interaction part. Um, one of these was pre-established harmony, which is a doctrine that the, the relationship between the mind and the body is a little bit like the relationship between two clocks. Right? Two clocks will continue to tell the same time, but they don't causally interact with each other. One is not, one doesn't say it's five o'clock because the other one says it's five o'clock. They kind of, they run in parallel. So the idea would be that your body is governed by purely physical law your mind is governed by some other kind of law, not purely physical. There's no causal interaction between them, but they, the God really sets it up so that they run in parallel. So I have thoughts and my body behaves in a particular way. Like I think, you know, I'm gonna go to the store now and my legs move in such a way to get me to the store, but there's no causal interaction. The reason my legs move is not because I had the thoughts. 
They're just completely independent of each other. And that seems like a sort of bizarre view too. That, that doesn't seem very attractive for a bunch of reasons. And so eventually, this we're not talking about the mid 20th century now, um, people started trying to essentially give up on dualism and start trying to arrive at a purely physicalist account, which says that, you know, the there isn't really a separate soul, there isn't a separate substance, it's just all physical, but then you still have the problem of mental causation, because you still have this problem of how to, how does the mental make a difference to um, over and above the physical explanation of behavior. What is the pairing problem? The pairing problem is a problem that arises for dualism. If you have a, if you've got two bodies or, you know, different bodies, different human bodies, different animal bodies, whatever kind of bodies, and you've got these minds that are immaterial, separate, um, not in space and time, how does a mind get attached to a body? What's the What's the principle that says this mind goes with this body, this mind goes with this other body? Um, I mean, one way of kind of thinking about it is if you think about reincarnation, how does a how does it work that a particular soul gets attached to a particular body? Right? What's the what's the principle there that allows them to get paired up? So, um, is dualism wrong? Um, I think so. Uh, you know, people are going to differ on this. There are some dualists still um, who think that for a variety of reasons, we still should think that the mental and the physical are separate things. Um, one wants to be a little bit careful here because there's actually two different kinds of dualism. There's substance dualism, which says that the mind and the body are two fundamentally different things. And then there's property dualism, which says not that the mind and the body are different things, aren't two substances here, um, but there are mental properties, which are properties which are like qualities or characteristics. The properties are properties of physical things. So it's not that there are minds out there as different objects that aren't physical. Mental properties are still gonna be properties of brains, but they're not gonna be they're not physical properties. There's there's some other kind of property, um, and part of the problem that is that there is with this consciousness stuff that I referred to earlier, that we don't actually have a good explanation of what the relationship is between consciousness and the physical brain. Um, that 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 seems to still really be a very difficult problem, and so some people have responded to that difficult problem by saying, well, they're just mental conscious properties are just different. They're not physical properties of the brain. There's something else that happens to be correlated somehow with physical properties of the brain. Mm -hmm. Oh, what is non-dualistic thinking? Um, well, you can interpret this in different ways, I guess. I mean, one of them is, um, just the physicalism that I referred to before, that if you reject dualism, at least in the context of sort of traditional Western philosophy of mind, you, 
to not be a dualist is to be some kind of monist. That's the opposite term from dualist is monist. Monist means one thing, dualism means two things. Um, and one of the standard forms of monism is physicalism, which says everything is physical. Another form of monism, which is not very popular now, but there have been people in the history of philosophy who've said this, is idealism, which rejects the physical and says everything is just ideas, everything is mind, there's no physical stuff, it's all just everything is just mental. Right, so there's only one fundamental kind of thing in the world, but the one fundamental kind of thing in the world there is is the mental stuff, not physical stuff. A um, little bit hesitant here because there's a whole different meaning of non-dualism, which comes from a very different tradition, and that's the Buddhist tradition where they talk about non-dualism, but that means something really different than what it means in the context of Western philosophy. Um, so I just want to make sure be clear that when we talk about non-dualism, not talking about that that very different meaning in the in the Buddhist tradition. Yeah, oh, sure. Could you explain about the manifest image of human beings? Um, this is a, a old. It's a slogan from Wilfred Sellers, who was an American philosopher. Um, he the manifest image is just this is the way we ordinarily commonsensically think about human beings we think about human beings as as having beliefs and desires as having free will as making choices as having certain kinds of prediction and explanation work for their behavior it's like if i want to know what you are going to do i can I just think in terms of your mental states. I don't think in terms of your sort of underlying physical characteristics. Um, contrast that with the scientific image. And the scientific image is just the picture that you got of human beings when you're thinking of them as scientific objects, as it were, right? So you might think of them as, you know, you have a brain and we tell a story about your brain in terms of what neural patterns you have and what kinds of chemicals are in your brain and the kinds of neural firings that go on and all the other things that we can say about you as, as a physical object. I mean, it's not simply, um, I'm, I'm talking about the brain a lot here, but part of the scientific image of human beings also can refer to um, the kinds of thinking that say behavioral economists are doing. Um, or other psychologists, other economists, that the kinds of explanation of our behavior that we give just by appealing to beliefs and desires doesn't map very well with the kinds of explanation that people from these other disciplines will sometimes give. Um, so from one of the things that behavioral economists tell us is that, for instance, if you want people to eat more healthily, one of the ways you can do that, if you're just, talk, just thinking about like a cafeteria or a grocery store, people tend to, are more likely to choose food if it's at eye level. So if you want people to eat more salads, you just put the salads at eye level, right? Nobody thinks that about themselves. You don't think that you choose food because of where it happens to be on the shelf. You think that you choose food because you've got all these other reasons. You know, you like this or this looks appealing to you or, or blah, blah, blah. But in fact, if you want to change what people eat, you change where you put the food on the shelf. Um, if you want to change whether people contribute to retirement, you don't 
you have to convince them whether or not to, you don't have to make arguments about whether to get them to contribute to the retirement account. You just change whether it's an opt-in or an opt-out, right? If it's opt-out, people are much more likely to contribute to retirement than if it's opt-in. And nobody thinks of themselves that they're that, I don't know, lazy is a little bit of an insult and I don't really mean it that way, but you don't, you don't understand yourself as being motivated by those kinds of considerations. But in fact, people are motivated by those kinds of considerations. Right. So this whole kind of scientific image, which is what do we actually learn about people when we do science about them versus the manifest images? How is it that we think of ourselves? Um, what kind of Im image do we have of ourselves and our behavior and the motivations for our behavior? Um, and then the problem of reconciling the manifest and the scientific image is to try to to bring these things together. How do we make sense? How do we think of ourselves as people who are actually motivated by beliefs and desires, um, given that all these other things are true of us? Or maybe we shouldn't think of ourselves that way, but it's also really hard to give that up, right? You, you, don't, you can't make sense of people. You can't interact with people if you just, if you don't treat them as people, <coughs> sorry, if you, if you don't treat them as people who have reasons and that you can talk to and interact with. Um, hmm. yeah, that, that's a really good point. Do you think that behavior can be completely explained by the law of nature? Um, because I'm not a dualist, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, now, that's an in-principle explanation as opposed to a actual practical explanation. Do I think that, you know, if I look at physics and think and, you know, come up with the um, perfect account of your brain that's completely detailed in all aspects and know all the, the inputs that it's getting and understand the structure completely, could I make predictions about everything you're gonna do? I think in principle, yes. Do I have that kind of information? No. Do I have that kind of computational capacity? No. So practically I can't, but in principle, I think, yes, you're going to be able to explain behavior in terms of laws of nature because you can explain everything in terms of laws of nature ultimately, if the world is a physicalist one. Um, if dualism is true, then, then no. But if the world is a physicalist one, then yes. Um, but only in principle, not practically. Yeah, are people always responsible for their actions? Um, that question is part of why this mental causation question is so interesting, right? Because if you think that behavior is all rooted in our physical being, as it were, and if behavior is completely explainable in terms of the laws of nature and previous facts, then one of the consequences that some people have found is that no, no one's going to ever be responsible for anything um, because it's just physics, right? And you're not responsible for physics. You're not responsible for the laws of nature being what they are. You're not responsible for your brain having the structure that it does. So you're not responsible for anything. Um, the way that philosophers deal with this, or some philosophers, some philosophers just bite that bullet and say, yep, no one's ever responsible for anything. 
you know, face it. Um, other ones have said, well, we have to think more about what responsibility involves or what responsibility really requires. Maybe it doesn't require some being outside of this causal network. Maybe we can make sense of being responsible um, because you have certain capacities. And so as long as you have those capacities and you're exercising them, you can be held responsible. But that doesn't that means you wouldn't be held responsible for anything, for everything. But people always think that, right? I mean, if I we want to make a distinction between if I'm cause a car accident because I'm texting, that's the kind of thing that you can blame me for, right? Because that seems like it's a choice in some sense to text or not. If I cause a car accident because I have an epileptic seizure, I'm not responsible for that, right? I'm, the epileptic seizure is not up to me. And so the problem is how you get the texting up to me, given this background assumption that it's just everything you do is caused by the structure and organization of your brain, right? That's the problem is to get people responsible for anything. Um, but generally people are going to grant that there's some things that you're not responsible for, like the car accident that is caused by the epileptic seizure. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. It's quite a complicated issue once you start to think about it, isn't it? And yeah, I think that's the lesson. It's really difficult and really complicated once we start to dig into it. Well, it's been great having you on the program today. Thanks very much for coming on. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And I've been speaking with Associate Professor Sarah Worley about mental causation. And thanks so much for tuning in and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. <laughs>